Good morning, family. Y'all awake out there? Um, I think this morning is actually like the um, reunion for people who are the furthest away but remain members. And what I mean by remain is once a member, always a member. I know we thanked um, or welcomed uh, Marilyn and Eldon, saw Yvette, and Joe Jones also from California. So apparently if you're far away and you start with C and that's where you're from, you're here with us this morning. So welcome back. Um, I'd like to just pray for us real quick before we start. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love. God, we praise you for your power. Father, help us to stay rooted in you. Lord Jesus, keep our eyes glued to you. Holy Spirit, conquer our flesh and the spirits within. God, forgive us. God, forgive us. God, forgive us our sins. God, we thank you for your love. God, we praise you for your power. Amen. Um, I'd like to begin by reading our scripture this morning. Uh, returning back to 1 John, um, this time finds us in 1 John 3, 4 to 10. One day I'm going to finish 1 John, and it's going to be a great, great day. I think it's three years now, but we're still going. Um, 1 John 3, 4 to 10 reads like this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who are the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. I grew up with a pastor like this kind of similar. Um, one thing that I really thank God for is that sometimes scripture just makes sense to me. You know, I was one of those pastors that I thought was pretty straightforward. Um, it's pretty much right there, right? Sin is lawlessness. The ancient Jews understood sin as breaking the divine covenant. Sin is something that doing what you're not supposed to be doing. It wasn't just your action, but it was actually a tearing of the relationship between you and God. Sin was lawlessness. The ancient Greeks and Hebrews came together in the New Testament, and they kind of saw it as falling short, missing the mark, right? Not getting to the point where God wants you to get. But this idea of sin-breaking covenant pulls us back to the idea that our sin can affect our relationship with God. You know, I think we struggle sometimes to even know there's sin still in us, or sin in the world. But what we need to understand this morning is that every time we take a step in the wrong direction, we not only stall where we're going, but we're tearing the very fabric of our relationship with God. And if we're honest, our relationship with each other. And if we're more honest than that, our relationship with our value of ourselves. That's what sin does. But in the passage tells us, then we have this guy called Jesus. Amen. Jesus comes to do one simple thing. That's to take away the sin of the world. The passage says, sin is the devil's work. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. Live in Christ. Stop sinning. And if you continue to sin, the idea here is that you don't know and you don't see Christ. This week um, in our, our Wednesday night, our junior high, we had a couple of budding theologians. And we were talking about that one passage when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I said, don't you think it's a little harsh when Jesus says, if your yes is not yes and your no is not no, that you're of the devil? Everything else is of the devil. 
And then we dug in a little bit, and I love the, the, senior, the junior high starting to think and grasp this whole thing because I think a lot of us adults haven't gotten it yet. And they said, well, if your yes is yes, then you're a person of integrity, then you're a person of loyalty, then you're a person of faithfulness. If you're yes, you're looking like Jesus. But if your no is no and you don't have integrity and you're not loyal and you're not faithful, then you do look like the devil, isn't it? So maybe Jesus does know what he's talking about. Continuing sin, and John tells us here, then you don't know Christ. You don't see Christ. You've never seen him. If you keep sinning, you're going to look like the devil. If you keep living in sin, you're going to look like your father, the devil. But if you do what's right, if you love others, that's how you look like your father who's God. Now, I used to think this was pretty straightforward and easy until it wasn't. See, I grew up going to camp from about 10 to about 25, right? One of the funny things, when I graduated with my business degree, I was applying for business jobs and would look at my resume. It would be like, summer camp, summer camp, summer camp, summer camp. And they'd be like, why are you here? I'm like, I don't know. But summer camp was wonderful, you know. But one of the things I loved about summer camp was I grew up in southwest Philly, and it was crazy, right? Like, one of the things I prayed for in high school was a Christian friend. Like, I just wanted one, right? And God gave me two my senior year. No big deal. Took him a little while. But one of the things I loved about camp is we get into these ridiculous debates about nothing, right? Like, and I don't mean nothing as in, like, they're not important. I mean nothing as in, like, nobody grew from them, right? You know some of them if you went to Christian school, too. Predestination and free will. We had to figure that out right then and there, right? You had to. Law and grace. We had to figure out how it fits together. And whoever can articulate their point. I think we're all, I don't know, people make fun of millennials a lot. So I'm going to blame our parents. So if you're a parent of a millennial, you're in that generation, this is your fault. Because we learned this from you in modernism, right? We had to draw our lines in the sand. That's your fault. We had to prove our we're right. That's your fault. We had to convince and win the argument. That's your fault. Thank you. You're welcome. But this is what we did, right? And I remember this one time. We're in one of these beautiful do-nothing, grow-nowhere arguments. And someone just slipped in the line. They said, yeah, no, I think as Christians we can no longer sin. And I was like, excuse me? Like, wait, what? What did you just say? Like, what? Like, come back. Like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, 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 you know, when we're Christians, like, we can't sin anymore. I'm like, really? Like, at all? Like, done? They're like, yeah. I'm like, um, explain this to me, right? I was kind of calm. You'd be pretty impressed by me. I was calm as a 15-year-old. I was like, explain this to me. They're like, well, we're covered by the blood of Jesus. I was like, listen, man, my mom, my grandmom, my grandmom's mom, my grandmama, mama, mom, they all been praying for me to be covered by the blood. I think I understand covered by the blood. But you tell me we're covered so we don't sin no more? And they're like, yeah. Like an artist, right, can only create art. And I was just like, see, that's my ninth grade um, art teacher lied to me. She told me everyone's an artist. That's not true. Some people are good. Some people are not, right? But he's like, like an artist, right, can only create art. So a sinner sins and a saint, you know, can't, right? And I was just like mind blown. I'm just like, this makes no sense. What do you mean? We're saved, so now we can't sin? They're like, yeah, that's what the passage says. And we get back to this passage, right? And I think the, the, the you know, I follow Bible translations because that's what I do for fun, right? Um, it's like I took Hebrew and Greek in school, and it's like now I got to use it somehow. And this is one of the ways I do it. And it's changed, actually. 
Because when I was 15 years old, that passage did say, you know, stop sinning, right? There wasn't the, the actual Greek interpretation of continuing and living in sin that you'll now find in present-day NIV. So the person was reading their Bible in English, because sometimes we forget English is just a translation, right? Um, so they're reading their Bible in English, and they just said, we will sin no more. And what's funny is when I got a little bit older, I found out about this guy named Plato. You might have heard of him, right? And Plato had kind of the same argument. So my friend who I thought was being ridiculous was actually Platonian, right? Beautiful. Um, and Plato said, you know, everyone is like a craftsman. And the only true sin is if you're like, if you created something and it's beautiful, but it has a little crack in it, your only sin is like, if you weren't being a craftsman in that moment, that's why it was a mistake, right? And that's kind of the same argument that, I don't know, thousands of years later, my friend is drawing upon was saying that like, if you're a Christian, right, you can't sin. Because when you do sin, it's like an aberration, but you can't sin. I think how I won the argument is I got back to, at the time, the smartest person I know, which was my grandfather, right? My mom's dad had a fourth grade education, but God blessed him with a photographic memory. So I honestly think in fourth grade, he just said, I don't need books anymore. I read it once, I got it, right? Um, he got to be a judge in, in Liberia. One of the things that he would tell people is that, you know, you can go to America and get your PhD, you can get your master's, you can get your high school degree, but if you don't got your CS... You're useless, right? And he was a nice guy, seriously. Um, he would tell people they're useless, and everyone would be like, what's a CS, right? And everyone in the family heard this story all the time, so we're just like, here we go again. Here comes the line, right? Your common sense degree, right? And that's what he said. And I think one of the times when we read the Bible, sometimes we slip and we forget the common sense, right? You don't need the Hebrew or Greek to realize that as a Christian, I still mess up. As a Christian, I still sin. As a Christian, I'm not yet complete, right? And so I came back to my friend. I was like, okay, so do you mean that like one day maybe we'll get to this point of holiness that maybe we can't sin? And they're like, no, 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 no. You just, you can't sin, right? So what I love about this argument is it was the first time instead of just arguing back and forth, I went back to the scripture. And what I found is that my friend was not just making this point, but they were going against common sense. But deeper than that is they were going against scripture because the passage is pointing out very, very clearly that if you belong to God, you cannot live in sin. This is not talking about stubbing your toe and saying a bad word. This is not talking about falling into temptation. This is talking about your idea of knowing what is wrong and continuing in it. We're all in this room responsible for what we know. If you know what is right and you're not doing it, you are living in sin. And that's what the passage is trying to get to. And the funny thing about it is Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who's one of my favorites now, said, you know what, man? The heart is deceitful and beyond all cure. So how dare we stand before God and say we're incapable of sin? But if I look around this room and if I look inside to myself, I think a lot of us as Christians live as though we're incapable of sin. And that's why we disdain sin. Remember the ancient Jewish understanding of heart wasn't just some emotional thing, right? It was the essence of who you are. It was your mind, your body, your soul, your spirit. It was your gifts. It was your hopes. It was your dreams, right? And Jeremiah looked at that and he says, listen, when I look at the heart, it is deceitful and beyond all cure. Are we capable of sin? Yes. Are we to live in sin? No. And that's what John is calling us to. I was trying to figure out how to flesh all this out. And I actually got first in Jeremiah, but then I went back to Cain and Abel. 
Because I think the basic foundation of what John is talking about today is actually founded in Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. The ancient Jews had this concept called Timshel. And Tim Shell was this basic idea of thou mayest rule over it. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Cain was the farmer and Abel was the shepherd. Cain sacrificed out of his excess and Abel sacrificed out of his best. And we can pause right there and just take a moment and look at ourselves. How much are we giving God of the excess? And how much are we giving God our best? You know, we can look at that story and we jump to the murder, but we forget the teaching before The true follower of God gives their best, gives her best, gives his best, not the excess and the leftover for God. We don't squeeze God in. So right in the beginning, you learn this thing. I said all of us are living in sin. Why? If we are not doing what we know we ought to be doing. So you're living in sin this morning if you're living out of your excess to God and not giving him your best. And that was so deep that Cain grew angry. He grew so angry. God tries to call him out and save him, but Cain doesn't listen. And you know the rest of the story. He goes out and he does what? He kills his brother. The, 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 the Lord's brother, James, summed it up in James 1. He says, you know, it's like evil that comes inside of us. It gives birth to sin. And when it gives birth to sin, it leads to death. One of the things we have to understand about living in sin is that it always leads to death. And we might not be out there murdering anyone. Actually, we got to check ourselves because Jesus says, if you even think about hating someone, that's like murdering them. Everything you know you're responsible for. But sin always leads to death. But this concept of Tim Shell is, I think, what John is calling on to. And I think this is how we need to look at sin. Because if you go back to Genesis 4, 7, when the Lord is trying to reach Cain, he says this. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It is desire is to have you, but you may rule over it. That's Tim Shell. A lot of times when we look at sin, we look at it as a like God ordering us, right? That like you will rule over sin. And sometimes maybe that's good and that gets you through. But I would argue that's not the foundational way God wants you to approach sin. Because there are certain things I can't just command you to stop doing and then you all of a sudden stop doing it. So sometimes the order is not good enough. Sometimes we look at promise because we're people of hope, right? It's like I'm struggling with this thing. I'm struggling to make this wrong direction. But one day, someday, somehow, I might get there. I have the hope that maybe I can conquer this thing someday. And again, that's good. But I would argue that's not the foundation of how God wants you to deal with sin. Because if you're still waiting for someday to make the progress, if you're still waiting for that day to come to stop living in sin, I would argue that's not how God wants you to live. You see, in Genesis 4-7, God says, you may rule over it. Sin starts with maybe a thought and a feeling and a desire, and then it gives birth to itself as sin, but then it leads to death. But God says, Tim shall. And what he means by that is, you're always going to have a choice 
to rule over it. Because if you may rule over it, you can also then decide to what? Not rule over it. Why is this important? Because John gets the heart of what happened in Genesis 4. And I think John probably knew Jesus the man the best. And I think he gets the heart of this concept of how God wants us to approach sin. Because he says this, right? You need to rule over sin or sin will rule over you. You need to look like God or you will look like the devil. John's writing so that we can know that we are called to rule over sin. Yes, it's a choice. But if we want to look like our father, we have to. We have to rule over sin. Cain had a choice, but he let that sin rule over him. All of us this morning, we have a choice to be faithful to God. We have a choice to rule over the sin that so easily plagues us. And this morning, I have a little bit of relief for us. Because I think God gives us two very, very powerful things that help us rule over sin. And then if that too wasn't enough, I think God gives us four other things that helps us rule over sin. The first one is simply his love. When we're fighting with sin, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When we're fighting and looking at ourselves as being incomplete, God says, that's okay. Find your completion in me because I will complete the good work I've begun in you. When we're fighting with sin, God says, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from my love. You know, I think the greatest story of love in the Bible is Jesus on the cross. But I've been really, really struck for probably the last six to eight months about a story that not many of us know because this is one of those prophets that is just easy to zoom right through. But it's the story of Hosea and Gomer. If you know this story, it's a really fascinating story to me. But I honestly think when we think specifically about what our sin is and what our sin does and how God loves us, I think this is actually the best story in the Bible to flesh it out. If you don't know, Hosea was a prophet, a man of God, and God says, hey, I heard there's a loose woman around town. Some call her a prostitute, some call her a harlot, but we know she's out there in the world. Hosea, I want you to marry her. Hosea's like, are you sure? Like, her? No, I, no, I, got, I got dreams of what my life should be, but really? And God says, yes, I want you to marry her, and he does. And he tries his best to love her, but her heart is with someone else. Her heart with lots of other people. Her heart is with the world. And time and time again, she's breaking his heart and breaking his heart and breaking his heart. And finally, he's loving her so much. He's like, I don't deserve this love. And she goes off and she runs off. And the fascinating thing about this is Hosea, you can see him talking to God. is like, really? Really? This is what I'm called to do? You see why I think this story is so important and why I think it ties in so well with our sin is because we are like Gomer. Now, I thought about using the prodigal son, and I think that one's been beaten to death, right? Because we have this father who will always love us. And I don't think that touches our sin as much as Gomer's story does. Because all of us in this room are unfaithful to God on some level. Hosea and Gomer don't just represent God and Israel. It represents God and his people. Every time you sin, every time you choose to not do what's right, every time you choose to look like the devil, you are breaking God's heart. Every single time you don't do what you're called to do, every time you leave good left undone, every time you fall short, you're breaking God's heart. Just like Gomer would give herself to other people, that's what you do every time you sin. 
You're giving yourself over to the devil. You're giving yourself over to this world. And the father who loves you is like Hosea in this story who wants to give you the love. What I love about this story is it's a story of redemption. And one day Hosea, um, Gomer with one of her lovers, gets kicked out of the house and, and she's put on the auction block and, and Hosea's walking. You can almost imagine Gomer thinking to herself, it's like, I had love and I ruined it. Some of us feel that way about God this morning. I have love and I couldn't accept it. I know he loved me, but I couldn't give my life to him. Now I'm embarrassed and, and I'm living in my sin and, and what's he going to do? And Hosea buys back Gomer. I never understood this idea of Jesus ransoming us because I never felt like a prize before. But this story says that no matter what you've done, God's love will buy you back. Amen? I love Psalm 23. Grew up reading that my whole life. And I love the end when we say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And we think of God's love as like a shadow. But that word is actually an action word. It's a war word, right? When you're chasing somebody down. Like, for example, when the Israelites left Egypt and the Egyptians were like, we need to get them back. That's the same word that's used. It's radaf in the Hebrew. As I will chase you down until you're captured. And that's why Hosea and Gomer are so beautiful. Because even though our sin breaks our relationship with God, rips out the fabric of his love for us, even though we fall short, he will buy us back. And that's the beauty of God's love. The second thing I think we have this morning is resurrection power. You know, in Romans, Paul says it like this. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. The same power. The same power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is afforded to us this morning. That's how we can conquer sin. If God is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, I think he's powerful enough to raise you from the dead. Jesus left the grave. So will you. I think so many of us get comfortable with our grave clothes on. Pastor Linda told me not to preach about Lazarus, but I think she put Lazarus in my head, so here we go, right? I think so many people love that story, right? Jesus is great. He raises him from the dead. But how many of us look at our own lives and realize that we might still have on the grave clothes? How many of us look at our own lives and know that we've been raised up, but we're still out there trying to look like the world, we're still dead in our sins and our trespasses. How many of us this morning truly know the freedom of new clothes, of being a new creation? How many of us are willing this morning to leave the grave behind? To leave the grave behind. There's a song that I've been listening to for like the last three months called So Alive by Hillsong. And I love it. There's so many great lines in there. One of my favorite ones is, if creation sings your praises, so will I. If creation still obeys you, so will I. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow down in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. But the one that really spoke to me this week is the last stanza of the song, and it goes like this. And as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear where you lost your life so I could find it here. If you left the grave behind, so will I. If you left the grave behind, so will I. I can see your heart and everything you've done, every part designed in a work of art you call love. 
If you gladly chose surrender, so will I. If you want to know the resurrection power of God this morning, you have to be willing to leave the grave behind. If he left the grave behind, will you this morning? I think to help us rule over sin, these are the two guiding things we need to know. That we have a God who so loves us more than we could ever imagine, yes but loves us even though we're breaking and tearing this fabric of relationship. Love us even though we're not faithful. Love us even though we're not loyal. Love us even though we fall short. He will always bring us back home again. But we also have this resurrection power that sisters and brothers, I see a world out there in darkness, and I need you to start tapping into it because that's how we bring the light. If you want to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have to prove resurrection in your life. Because someone might not believe he grew from the grave and walked again, but they'll believe that you used to be a sinner and now you look like Christ. They might not believe that Jesus died on the cross, but they can see you dying to the selfishness, dying to the greed, dying to putting yourself first, dying to career, dying to settling for good and not God's best. They can see resurrection in your life. They can see resurrection in your life. If you want to bring light to the dark, leave the grave behind. But to help us rule over sin, I think God gives us four more things. And I think I want to end with this because I think they're so important. Because you can know God's love will help you. You can know there's this resurrection power. But I think there's four things that you can do to tap into those two. The first is simply this. Stay rooted. Stay rooted. Stay rooted in our father, the gardener. In John 15, again, we're using John all over it, but John says it like this. He's quoting Jesus who says, Abide in me and you will live and you will bear fruit. Abide in me and you will live and you will bear fruit. And in that passage, John explains that Jesus is saying that like, if you're not living and rooted in me, you will wilt and you will die. If you want to walk in this resurrection power, if you want to embrace this love of God, if you want to go out there and shine for his glory, you have to take the time to abide and rest in him. You have to learn how to live in him. So my question this morning is, what do you need to do to stay rooted? For some of us, that's getting deeper into the scripture. For some of us, that's prayer. And what I mean by prayer, I mean a conversation. Not just when we tell God on a need-to-know basis or all the things that we need, but when we just sit and listen and we get overwhelmed by his presence. What do you need to do to stay rooted? Because if you want that resurrection power, if you want to know what the love of God feels like, you have to get to know him. That's your work. You have to stay rooted. You have to stay rooted. You have to stay rooted because, sisters and brothers, if we're not rooted, we will wilt and we will die. The second thing is we got to keep our eyes on the sun. My younger brother, I used to say my little brother, but then somewhere like five years ago, he grew taller than me, right? So he's not my little brother anymore. I blame my dad who was a little shrimp. He was like 5'5", five five, right? My mom's still taller than me. That's like, whew. You need a therapist for that stuff, right? Especially in our, 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 our super masculine, ill masculine society and toxic masculinity. I had to grow out of that. I did, right? But it's still weird. Um, my younger brother's taller than me, but I remember when I was in college, he's a lot younger than me too. So it's like when I was in college, he was either three or four. I don't even know. I have kids now. I shouldn't know. Um, Harper's four. We still give her a bath. So he might have been older than that, right? Um, but it was whatever age when you first start taking shower by yourself. So five, six, I don't know, right? 
And I remember coming home, and, and, and I, 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 just, I sing a lot. Right? I sing a lot to myself. Now it's like I have a music in my phone. I just play it everywhere. Like I brush my teeth. Music. I shower. Music. This is what I do, right? And, but back then, we didn't have these on uh, my cell phone. We didn't have these things, music boxes on us, right? So I would sing. And I didn't realize how much I was singing this song until, you know, he's like, come here, you got to see this. I was like, dude, I really don't want to see you shower. Like, I'm good, you know? He's like, no, no, but I can do it by myself. I was like, all right, whatever, right? And I'm sitting there. And I listen, and he starts singing. And he starts singing these great Christian writers called Audio Adrenaline. There's a song called Walk on Water. And I listen to my five- or six-year-old brother say, just like Peter, I want to go farther, tread on the seas, and walk on the water. Step where he steps. Go where he goes. Side by side when the sea billows roll. I'll be all right when the wind comes. I'll be all right when the waves come crashing. I'm not afraid, no, no, for this is my father's world. And something in me broke. Because I had sang that song and never thought about it. And I think that was the point I realized that there's no great miracle that Jesus walked on water. Jesus spoke the world into existence. Jesus created this world without a point of reference. It's not a miracle for him to walk on water. But it is a miracle that Peter walked on water. And if you, if you weren't there, but you can hear the pitter-patter as my little brother walked on water. And I was struck by this because in this life, the trials will come. In this life, the storms will come. In this life, everything will keep your eyes off Jesus. But this morning, sisters and brothers, I'm telling you, if you want to know what the love of God feels like, if you want that power to conquer everything, if you want that light to shine in you, you have to learn how to keep your eyes on Jesus. And I'm confident that if you keep your eyes on Jesus, the storms may go, the billows may roll, but you will walk on water. Amen? And this last thing I think God gives us to help us truly tap into his love and his resurrection power is our community. One of my um, favorite singers is actually, I used to call him the, the millennial prophet. You know, I think for a while he wrote all the songs for the millennials, right? Um, this guy by the name of Marcus Mumford, he has a little band out of England called Mumford and Sons. And, and one of the things that's fascinating is I read a lot about music, right? Um, and they would always talk about how he had these themes of salvation and good and evil and themes of Christianity. And I listened to him, I was like, he's writing hymns. You know, it's not themes, he's writing hymns, right? So I did some digging, and I found out that his parents are actually ministers in England. And it made sense to me, right? And it's funny because we're talking about Tim Shell, right? The idea that like, you can choose to rule over sin or you can choose for sin to rule over you. And wouldn't you know, Marcus Bumford on that first album has a song called what? Tim Shell, right? And I want to read you the lyrics because I think when we think about community, if I can find it, when we think about community, I think this is where we go. Oh, maybe I didn't print it out. I'll have to recite it from my hand, right? There's a line in the song where he talks about, as brothers, we will stand, and you'll hold your hand, hold your hand, right? He says, you have your choices, but as brothers, we will stand, and we'll hold your hand. When I thought about sin, I thought about what it means to be community this morning, I realized that none of us are meant to do this on our own. If you want to know what God's love feels like, you got to be able to touch somebody. If you want to know what God's love tastes like, you got to be able to hear somebody speak it into your life. You have to have community. Our culture tells us you can do it alone, 
Scripture tells us you can't, and that's okay, because God blesses you with the people around you. All of us want to stand and walk on water, but I think Scripture calls us back to Tim Shell that if you want to conquer sin, you need people next to you. And in a generation before, we really stress accountability partners, and I think that's wonderful. I think if you have someone that you can go to and, and tell everything, and they still love you, You know, one of the things I struggle with in my early Protestantism before I became a full-out Anabaptist was this idea that we make fun of the Catholics all the time for going to confession, right? But then a lot of us as Protestants or as Anabaptists or as Bethan in Christ, we get to these places every now and then where we pray and we feel like we're talking to a wall. Right? I can critique Catholic theology with the best of them. One of my best friends is a Catholic and I love her. She challenges me, but I challenge her too, I think, a little bit, right? But we critique that theology all we want. And I read a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Bonhoeffer says, you know what, man? There is beauty in the confession. If you can go before a sister and brother and say, this is where I'm struggling. This is where I need help. And you can see forgiveness. You can see God's love. You can see non-judgment. There is something freeing about that. When we say sisters and brothers, we can hold hand. I think we need to build into our lives our own confessionals. I think we need to build into our lives people that we can go to and say, this is where I'm at. Help. This is where I'm at. Pray. This is where I'm at. Love me. Love me. That's what it means to be community. We may have a choice whether or not we want to rule over sin, but don't let community be a choice. Let community be a lifeblood. We have small groups at this church. You know, we want you to plug into those, and I would love if everyone was in the small group. But more than that, I would love if everyone had that kind of community, that person in your life that you can just go to and say, this is where I'm at. Because I guarantee you, if that's a mature, God-fearing, God-loving, Jesus-shining person, I can convince you this morning with all my heart that if that's the person you're saying that to, you will feel God's love like never before. Sin is not king. Jesus is. Amen? Sin is not king. Jesus is. Amen? One more time. Sin is not king. Jesus is. Amen? Sisters and brothers. Let us get in the habit of knowing that our God who loves us will help us. That our God who raised from the dead wants to raise us to new life. That our community is all around us, but our community needs us. And we need to pour into it and get poured into by that community. Let us stay rooted in the Father. Let us keep our eyes glued on the Son. Let the Spirit, let the Spirit rule the spirits within. Let the Holy Spirit rule the spirits within. This is the last point. A lot of us look at sin. And I think this is like a very helpful one. We get made fun of as millennials or not, so I'm just going to beat up the people who are older than millennials because you deserve it. Um, But I think this is another modern concept that we have, right? You know, when we think about sin, it's two lions raging against each other inside, right? And we love that imagery. But I don't want two lions raging inside of me. I'd rather tap into the spirit and say, your power is greater and you win. And that's what I want to rely on. Because if two lions are raging inside, I'm waiting for the victory. But my scripture, my savior, my Holy Spirit tells me the victory has already been won. 
It's already been won. So you don't have to worry. Don't let those modernists get you, thinking that life's about the lions raging inside of you. Release that and say, Holy Spirit, conquer the spirits in me. Conquer this flesh within. Conquer. Conquer this flesh within. I'd like to invite the worship team back up as we get ready for our final song. I'd like to also invite the intercessors up. I want you to think about this morning as we get ready to leave. What does it mean that God loves me? What does it mean that God wants to raise me from the dead? What does it mean that I have to be rooted in the Father? How am I going to do that? What does it mean that I got to keep my eyes on Jesus? How am I going to do that? What does it mean that I don't want the lions raging inside of me, but I want the spirit who has all the power and the victory already. I want the spirit to conquer. And what does it mean to have community? Who is my community? Who am I going to pour into so they pour into me? Please stand together as we sing this last song and come up for prayer for anything. We'd love to pray for you.